In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my queue. Welcome back to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we are talking about the sixth Democratic primary debate, which occurred 10 days ago on December 19th. Um, we was didn't... it the sixth or was it the seventh? It was the sixth. It was the sixth. It was the sixth. Um, and we didn't cover it last week because Nathan and I are both non-Christian observers of Christmas. And <laughs> so we <laughs> had a lighthearted, low investment episode Um which you haven't, if you haven't heard, then you should definitely listen to it because I went into it being like, yeah, we're just going to have fun and not be serious and joke about stuff. And then Michael went and got yeah, all sorry. serious at the end of it. I'm a serious guy. <laughs> Everybody's like that, Michael. No sense of humor at all. <laughs> um, and so today we're digging into the sixth Democratic primary debate. Um, before we get into it, um, we realized that last time when we talked about the fifth Democratic primary debate, we spent about like equal time on every candidate. We're going to endeavor today to skew towards the important ones. So we criticized last time um, that, you know, the networks provide pretty much the same amount of questions or speaking time to a lot of the candidates. I mean, yeah, they focus a bit more on the, the top few and, but like for the most part, everybody gets a similar amount of time. And we said like, that doesn't really make that much sense, especially when there are tons of people on the stage. Um, so we're going to try and follow our own advice and actually curtail our discussions of lower tier candidates and try to focus on the people that are actually going to be, you know, likely participants in the future. Yeah, they spent way too much time getting Klobuchar to talk. Now I'm going to spend 30 minutes complaining about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry for the hypocrisy. Even even we fall prey to it. Yeah. Um, but, but that it, being it, said, it Klobuchar spoke out. the second most amount during yeah. the debate. Uh, second only to Bernie, it looks like. Here. Yeah, and yeah. only by 20 seconds less. She spoke for almost 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and she's pulling at what? what like 3%, 3%? 3 to 4%. Jeez. Absolutely ridiculous. That is... But like, hey, good for her to like step out there. No, that was her big thing. No, that like, this is why there are a lot of people within the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that criticize the mainstream media. It's not because we're Trumpists and they go, oh, we tell fake news. No, no, no. But there is definitely a certain amount of bias that is skewed towards the more establishment candidates, the candidates that aren't going to do as much to change the status quo. And I don't think that it's necessarily malicious. I mean, it might be, but, you know, call, call me naive, but I don't think that's what it is. I think what it actually is, is all of these uh, media pundits are very well off, very wealthy individuals, and the status quo is working great for them. So they might be peripherally aware that it's not that great for most people in the country, but for them, it's pretty good. So a candidate like Klobuchar who says, oh yeah, I'm just going to make things like, you know, 3% better. And I'm sure that'll solve our problems. You know what? People, media, media pundits see that and they're like, yes, yes, that is what I want. That is, that is what we need. And wait, why, why is she pulling at 3%? Why does no one else like her? I mean, I like her. Everyone I know likes her. <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, you know, small incremental change is the least threatening kind. So 
there is to the to, to your point the people benefiting from the status quo the status quo with slight improvements is probably the best thing for them um, but we'll get into all that as yep. we dive in through each of the candidates so the format is going to be pretty similar to last time we'll give some general comments about like the setup of the debate and then we'll go through candidate by candidate um, from the lowest polling to the highest um, that's Steyer to Biden and um, you know give kind of our thoughts and then connect across candidates as we see fit all right, so let's get started with the um, least interesting, least relevant, and least has any effing right to be there. Yeah, Steyer. Yeah, so so Steyer, who's currently polling at like one point four percent, you might ask like, why the heck is he out there? He's actually polling behind Booker according to the five thirty eight polls. So the qualifications for this debate were um, fundraising of two hundred thousand unique donors or more and then um hitting four percent in four national polls or state polls or six percent in two polls of the early states that's iowa new hampshire nevada and south carolina so kind of convoluted um not like as clear a bright line as you know hitting a national poll number or just having a certain amount although of money. it did result in fewer candidates yes so and that was very much needed <laughs> i think it it the benefit of that shown through in the quality of the debate, the debate all the way through. Absolutely. Like every single candidate was so much better and was able to like say so much more of consequence, maybe with the exception of Steyer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now we're going to start the clock on um, discussing Mr. Tom Steyer. All right. So Tom Steyer was just kind of there. Like... What's kind of interesting is when I looked at, I'm looking at the uh, minute breakdown right now, and it's showing that he talked more than Andrew Yang. It did not feel like that mm -mm. because he didn't really say anything. Yeah, I didn't say much of anything. I mean, he kept, he repeated the talking point about how he's the only candidate who makes climate change his number one priority. That's just not true. There were... Like I said in our last debate breakdown, uh, I think it was the second debate where the question was asked, what is your number one priority? And like half of the candidates on stage said climate change. So that is a straight up lie. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. again, he has no right to be there. He's a billionaire who bought his way onto the stage. He has no elected experience. Like he does ha has no grassroots support. Like. He shouldn't be there. Yeah, it's funny because he spoke for a total of almost 12 minutes, which may not sound like a lot in the course of a two-hour debate, but when you're dividing it up by seven, you know, that's a that's a chunk. Um, and basically, it's funny because, like, through all that time, he said a number of things that were kind of interesting. He did make the point, he hammered the point home about Trump's immigration policy, that he's specifically against non-white immigration as opposed to just against immigration overall. It's absolutely true. And I thought, yeah, and like that resonated with the stage. I think it probably resonated with the moderators and the audience as well. I know it did for me. Um, so all like that got him some progressive goodwill. Um, but overall, his all of his points can be summed up in his like you know, 60 second closing statement, which is like, um, I'm different. He said, I'm different from all the other candidates and then proceeded to list all of his differentiating factors, which were exactly like the, like the very minimal requirements for <laughs> yeah. being all the other candidates. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's talking about like, his, you know, ready to take on corporate power and return power to the people, all things that everybody else on stage wants to do. Um, or at least claims they want to do, or at least claims they want to do. Um, 
you know, need to make bold changes. Uh, his, his big differentiating point was that he had built a business. Um, and so that he, he kept mentioning that that would qualify him to take on Trump on the economy. He said, like, I have created prosperity, so I know how to, like, unravel Trump's likely economic message. Um, and Which, I mean, maybe that's true. Uh, I would argue that hoarding resources at a, as a billionaire is not creating prosperity. <laughs> I would argue that. Um, but I mean, he did create like an international business. So yeah, there's he did like, create an international there is business. benefit there's, beyond that's something. Yeah, that's something. certainly. Um, I don't know if like that is a requirement in order, like, I don't know if it has to be businessman or businessman in the 2020 election. Um, yeah. And again, he repeated the climate change point multiple times and it was like everybody up there talked about that specifically, although no one closed with it except for him, which I thought was interesting. And also I've never heard him say whether or not he supports the green new deal. Mm. Now it's possible that he does, but I've never heard it in a debate. And if you're, you claim that climate change is your number one priority and you don't mention one of the biggest pieces of climate yeah. change legislation that is being debated in this primary, then how the hell do you have any claim to that? That's fair. So, he, d he did call out that like he thought nuclear power, because that came up at one point, was like not a viable option and that the United States needed to, to double down in wind and solar energy as like the primary energy source of the future, which I thought was interesting. Um, I think nuclear power is a, an attractive and viable option. I'm on I'm the Andrew Yang camp yeah. for that. But Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about nuclear power, but I'm not against it. Yeah. Like I haven't, I again, I'm saying that as someone that does not know enough about it to really feel like my opinion should matter. Mm -hmm. But based on what I have seen about it, it doesn't seem... It doesn't seem to be too scary, but yeah, okay, I'm no expert. Okay, we'll wrap this up really fast, but he did say that the toxic waste, the quote, toxic waste from nuclear power would last for 100,000 years, and that is so false. That's like... Wow, did he say that? Yeah, he wow. said 100,000 years. I was like, dude, you are... That's how it. That's that's not how it works. You've like, been I'm, huffing too much nuclear. I don't waste. know a like, damn thing about science, and I know that that's not how it works. Well, it's radioactive because it's giving off radioactive isotopes, and it has a short half life. Yeah, it, exactly. It goes to stability. Like radiation breaks down. It doesn't last for hundred thousand years. years. Not even plastic bags last that long. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> overall, pretty boring. Um, didn't really make any points that like really caught my attention. Yeah, he should just, he should drop out. <laughs> yeah, and he's pulling, like, at one point, He's pulling abysmally. Like, yeah. it's, yeah. All right, up next, let's talk about Klobuchar. Mm, Amy Klobuchar, let's do it. All right, so this, this is ridiculous. She talked for 19 minutes and 54 seconds, second only to Bernie Sanders, who talked for 20 minutes and 18 seconds. She is pulling at 3%. Like, and it's not just because she was assertively uh, claiming time while other people were talking. If that was, if that was it, then I'd be like, yeah, you know, that's, that's great. You know, insert yourself into these conversations. That's great. It was because the moderators were asking her more questions. Yeah. So yeah, they did. They asked her a lot of questions. She was a pit bull as far as trying to get attention though. Like yeah. there were times when you would hear her literally interrupt a candidate as they were talking and say like, Hey, I want to, I want to respond to this. Can I respond to this? Like, yeah. will you, will you call on me? Yeah. Um, 
So like she definitely advocated for herself, but they, they did ask her a lot of questions. Um, and maybe that's to kind of like, I felt like she and Buttigieg were, and we can talk about their like little tiff when we talk more about Buttigieg, but I thought they were like, she was trying to like go against him the most. She was like, well, cause they're going after the same voters better. And that was like her whole, like they're both Midwestern centrists. Like they're going towards the same, uh, sort of white moderate mm-hmm. college educated base. Yeah. Yeah. I thought overall she, she talked a lot. Um, like, you know, second only to Bernie. I don't know how much she actually said, like her message was, I am the most experienced, which he's not. Yeah. I am the most electable, which, which not. is arguable yeah. at best. Like, I can argue for a practical progressive plan was like her. But your plan isn't progressive. (laughs) And who the heck knows what it is? Yeah. You don't like she was given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to talk about what she actually wanted to do. And every time she would sidestep the substance of talking about a plan or a policy and talk almost exclusively about like her experience and electability. And she would, she would make, you know, say vague things and then just, um, you know, go back to her, her main points, which she hammered home. Like she, she used the word experience like tons of times. It was like 20 or 30 times. It was crazy. Yeah. But I don't know how much she said beyond that. But here's a question that I would, this is, here's a question that I would ask. And this is a question that you should ask yourself about every single candidate. And if you can't immediately answer it, then you should rethink that candidate you should think huh i wonder why they're in this primary to begin with what is her signature issue i have no idea exactly nobody has any idea what her signature well issue actually is. i do know she said it beating trump yeah that's not a signature issue i totally that is not a you. policy that, i that totally is, agree with you they all want to beat trump that is not a signature issue yeah so if i were to ask um what's andrew yang's signature issue uh uh, universal basic income. What is Elizabeth Warren's signature issue? Anti-corruption in Washington. And what is Bernie Sanders' signature issue? Healthcare for all and justice for all. Exactly. And you can't answer that for Klobuchar. <laughs> Nor can you answer it for Biden, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, again, that is really how you separate the people from who are uh, uh, the people who are in this for policies for trying to make people's lives better and people that are in there for themselves for Mm -hmm. because they want the legacy of being the president that's how you separate them if you can identify why specifically is this person running what are they trying to get achieved and if you can't immediately answer it then either they haven't communicated it in which case they're a crappy communicator and you shouldn't vote for him or they don't have one yeah and in full in full recognition like here on the Perspectrum, we tend to focus on policy. We tend to focus on, you know, principle and improvement. And we want to like, you know, and progressive ideas. There are people out there that want to focus on, you know, more status quo stuff. And they want to, their big emphasis is just beating Donald Trump, not accomplishing pretty much anything else. And like, that's the reason why you're seeing high polling numbers in candidates for whom you can't answer a question about what their thesis is yeah. for running. Um, but I'd say you're right. Like even if your main thesis to the swath of the American people who just want to defeat Trump 
is I can do it. You need a narrative, you need a thesis or a theme for why you're running besides like there's a bad guy in the office. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, the thing is, most people already know what they think about Donald Trump. There are some people, most people either hate him or love him. And the few people in the middle that are kind of like, eh, I mean, I guess the economy's working okay under him. Yeah. Like, yeah. what do you, and they're looking at, and when they look at Democrats, they're like, okay, what else do you bring to the table? Sure. And if all you bring to the table is screw Trump, screw Trump, they're like, well, that's not something to vote for. So I'm just going to either stay home or vote for Trump. Yeah, I really, I would, I really worry about that as an argument for getting the primary yeah. nomination because you, you're not going to, I mean, Tom Steyer said this a bunch. You're not going to beat Trump on the economy if you have no real record with the economy and your only theme is like, I'm not going to change anything. I'm going to do a couple progressive things and yeah. you know, everything's going to be the same. Yeah. Like that's not going to get you there because we, because you are at a disadvantage against an incumbent, even if it is Donald Trump. Yeah. Like you have to be better than him as a baseline on key yeah. issues. The last thing that I want to say about Klobuchar, because we don't want to spend too much time on her because yep. we want to talk about the People important candidates, yep. um, is there is that there is that uh, kerfuffle between yep. Warren and Buttigieg that I thought was an important conversation. Mm -hmm. I thought this is what a debate should be. And she kind of interrupted by she she interrupted that by basically being like, um, this isn't what people want to see. Like, why are we disagreeing with each other? Because it's a debate. Yeah. For context, Warren and Buttigieg got into an argument about fundraising and essentially campaign finance. And they went back and forth three or four times about their different past and, and their policies. And um, then like the moderators were trying to move on or, or get somebody else's input. And Klobuchar just goes like, hey, I'm not here to listen to you guys argue and starts and takes the conversation in a different direction. Yeah, Which um, I... I hate it when candidates. Yes, you do are that. here yeah, to listen. It's a debate. <laughs> it's about finding the differences between you all. Yes, there are a lot of similarities, and that's great, but there are also a lot of differences. And the point of a primary and the point of a primary debate is to figure out those differences. Mm -hmm. So that just that just annoyed me. Yeah. Her sole strategy was to talk a lot, be loud, and to be fair, like it seemed, if you didn't know her polling numbers, like she was an important candidate because of how much she talked and that she tried to take on like a bunch of different important people. Like she went head to head with Warren and she went after Bernie and Biden. And like, so you're like, oh man, like maybe this person matters. And then she's a 3% and it's just like not yeah. going to make a difference. Yeah. And then like a bunch of pundits were all like, oh, Klobuchar was the big winner. Yeah. And they said that the last never too. moves. And the she, poll nev numbers. she never moves because she's a terrible candidate. And she keeps... Uh, okay, last thing on yeah, Klobuchar. Yeah, last thing. Last we, need thing. To, we need to move on from Klobuchar. This is a personal point. She is like the least authentic, like, about relating to young people via colloquialisms yeah. that I have, like, ever seen. She she sounds like the mom from Mean Girls who's like, who wants burgers and margaritas? I can <laughs> hang with you girls. She's like... She called that, like, every single time she throws out some canned, 
like rehearsed. I, rehearsed thing that's like, no, no, I know what's going on in, in, in the Twitter sphere. I know the kids. I'm groovy. Yeah. She throws out like, <laughs> oh, and of course, the notorious RBG. And it's like, have you read her biography? She's like, she's incredible. She's like, notorious is like fine, but like, get with it. Like, yeah. yeah anyway. All right, up next, let's talk about Andrew Yang. Yang Wang, thank you, Mang. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> okay. That's one way to start a segment. Um, so, interesting thing about Andrew Yang. He actually spoke much less than any of the other candidates. Like... He spoke like just oh, over 10 minutes. Yeah, just over 10 minutes, a full minute under Steyer. And yet, he seems to say a lot with those 10 minutes. I mean, here's something that I think is amazing. Uh, I watched the debate with my father. He he was a Clinton supporter um, mm-hmm. back in the 2016 election. Uh, he and I have a lot of disagreements um, on strategies like not necessarily not not as much on policies but like on strategies of how you push for a more progressive candidate versus how uh whether whether or not you should push for a more centrist candidate and he usually errs on the side of caution with that and yet at the end of this debate he actually looked at me and said i'm really starting to take a look at yang here dude i dig yang yeah i dig him he's great um and like honestly the fact that he says so much in so few words yeah. is a really good sign. He, I wish he would he say more. He almost never, he doesn't speak very much at these debates, but no. what he says is like really well thought out. It's yeah. smart. It's on point. Data it, driven. Yeah, it's data driven. Oh my gosh. Every point he makes is like, you can't argue with this because it is exactly right. Yeah. Like the one of the very first things he said, which like hit home for me and brought the whole, it like defined a really big theme of the debate. He said right at the very beginning, GDP and corporate profit is at a record high, but depression, student debt, suicides, and drug overdoses are all up. Which is so the what does that mean? Perfect, you know. That means that GDP and unemployment and things like that are not the only measures of American success, which is the whole argument that yeah. Republicans make about the economy. Yeah, like... They point to G, uh, to explosive GDP growth and say, see, you know, things have gotten so much better under yeah. Trump, which never mind the fact that a lot of that growth started under Barack Obama um, or the fact that uh, some a lot of the GDP growth was uh, happened because of the tax cuts, which then yeah. exploded the deficit, which yeah. is around a trillion dollars now. Yeah. Don't don't talk about that. So. That is the perfect response to this narrative of, well, what about Americans who say the status quo is good because the economy is great? Yes. Yeah, that is the perfect response. Yeah. And uh, like, it's a similar response that Warren made in the very first debate. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I thought she nailed it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, thing with thing with Andrew Yang, like we kind of established earlier, he is one of the candidates that you can very easily answer why he's running. And yeah. it's not because I. Uh, he wants to be president. It's not because like, you know, screw Donald Trump. It's because he actually has a vision. And I would actually argue, and this is a point that my dad made to me in some ways, he actually has a more clear vision of the future than Bernie Sanders. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, he's certainly defined the problem of the future. Yeah, better I think than Bernie or Warren. Like they are sol- very, very, very much just solving like the problem, some of the problems in the present. Yeah, but as far as like a long range view, seeing where the economy is going and worrying about like 10, 15, 20 years down the line and trying to prepare us for that, he is far and away the best candidate. Absolutely. Um, and like, look, the a lot of the signature issues that uh, Sanders and Warren do uh, champion, like free college tuition and Medicare for all, those are issues that have been talked about for the last 40 years. I mean, mm-hmm. they haven't been implemented yet and they yeah. need to be implemented, yeah. but... What people haven't been talking about over the last 40 years are automation, AI, yeah. and Andrew Yang is talking about that. Yeah. And I, like making the point that no, like, so, so the huge challenge of, I think, like making the immigration, the pro-immigration argument to um, conservative rural white Americans is that like, they're so worried that they're going to be displaced, especially economically. But also socially, but especially economically. And making the point that, like, no, the immigrants are not taking your jobs. It is machines that are taking your jobs. And they're taking it because billionaires want to save some money. Sure, exactly. And, like, and, you know, Steyer kept hammering home the point that, like, the technological move, he, he was talking specifically about climate change, like, that is our biggest obstacle and biggest, biggest opportunity was his, like, line that he yeah. always says. But honestly, like, Yang's point about, like, AI and automation being a huge problem that we need to get in front of with training. And, you know, there are plenty of blue collar jobs or close to that um, that can be used to support a futuristic economy. Yeah. And another thing about him is that. So I do have some major disagreements with him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't actually believe in a $15 an hour minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of his freedom dividend would include basically having people uh, choose between what benefits they might have. So like mm-hmm. if people are already on disability, uh, they could decide to do the freedom dividend instead, but they can't have both, mm-hmm. um, which I'm also, I also, I'm not sure I agree with. Uh, he also doesn't believe in free college tuition because again, in his mind, well, yeah. if I'm giving you a thousand bucks a month, if you want to, you can use that to pay for sure. college. Yeah. And like, I understand that, but at the same time, I think that it could all be part of a package deal. So I do disagree with him on several issues, Yeah. but it is clear that he is propped up not by special interests, not by corporations, but by grassroots support mm-hmm. because he does have a lot of grassroots support. Yeah. So when I disagree with him, I am disagreeing with him, not the position that he's being paid to have. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And... So I think that's interesting because, like, in his case, UBI is doing a lot of the work for him. He likes that is his go-to solution for economic problems. It's his go-to solution for racial justice problems. Um, Pretty much, like, most things go back to the UBI. And that's the thing that he was um, hammering throughout the whole debate. It kind of echoes, like, Warren's wealth tax which is her big solution to pretty much every economic question about the cost of her policies. You 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 listen to well, her speak about also marginal tax rates increase. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's true. But like when you talk when you hear her talk about like progressive policies, 
it almost all goes back to how well a two cent tax on yeah. the ultra rich people is polling yeah. and like how effective that's going to be. Which it is polling great. And it is polling great. It's a good, and we can get more into that. But it can't pay Warren. for every single thing she's talking about. Exactly. <laughs> it can't pay for everything. And I think that's true of the UBI as well. Like a yeah. thousand bucks a month is $12,000 a year. And, yeah. like and that is not going to make. And that's 24. Sure. Yeah. And that, but that is not going to make up for the fact that wages have been stagnant for a really long time. Yeah. And I think Yang has a long term solution for that. He has a long term solution for trying to like set up the economy to be better for 10 or 15 years down the line. Yeah. But it seems like that is his like main thing. I mean, he, he is pro, he is for universal health care. Yeah. Um, but, but that is his like main thing to get yeah. us there, to tide us over. Yeah. And also, I don't think that he's someone who thinks that he's running for president. Yeah. I think that he's someone who thinks that he is running specifically to put UBI into the conversation. And he has done that. Yeah. And this is why I often talk about primary challenges as being inherently a good thing, even if the more progressive candidate does not win, they force the establishment to move the Overton window. So... Bernie Sanders in his 2016 run, I you know I I've often referred to it as quite possibly the uh, most victorious defeat any candidate has ever had because <laughs> he did shift the Overton window on several issues. He did yeah. uh, bring the country to a majority support on single payer health care um, yeah. simply by reframing it as Medicare for all and pretty much yeah and like most other people support now like a public option yeah so it's like less than 10 years like ago. that's the corporatist position yeah yeah less than it is 10 insane years ago. that that is now the corporatist position when years ago like the affordable care act yeah was that was, was the, the slippery slope to socialism yeah exactly. and now we're like no 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 this this makes total sense i just want like good inexpensive health care yeah so i'm um, <laughs> yeah i thought for yang though to get back to yeah. who we're talking about i thought that because he was so focused on UBI, I think I think your hypothesis that he doesn't pl- he's not playing this like he's running for president is I think a good one. Which is funny because he's polling at the same level as Klobuchar, who's like trying to be yeah. like the next craziest president of the United States. Um, but because he was focusing that on that so closely, um, he didn't really touch on very much else. Which is, I think, part of like the actually like the benefit of this debate. Like at this point, like each one of the candidates has their narrative, even yeah. straight down to Steyer. Each one has exactly why they're running. They are prepped. They are ready to go. They like know exactly what where other people are coming from and where, what you know what thesis they have. Um, even if it's not a very good one, like Klobuchar or Biden or Buttigieg. Um, but with Yang. It was interesting because he's so focused on that problem that he he's his closing statement focused on like, all right, we are here to solve the biggest problems facing the people in the future. And he talked about the economy and he talked about jobs and how Washington isn't doing very much. Yeah. He did not talk about climate change at all. No, he didn't. Which he has a good, you know, he has a pretty yeah, strong platform on. Yeah. But like he talked about he literally said the biggest problems of the future and didn't mention climate change which is i don't know it seems like a big no-no to me yeah well and one thing i also want to say is because i I don't want to uh i don't want any yang supporters that might be listening to get the wrong idea uh i'm not saying that he 
would not make a good president. Yeah, I think you're I'm right. not saying that I don't think he could hold his own against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, he could make that economic argument. And I'm not even really saying well. that if you're supporting him or donating to him that or voting, planning to vote for him, that you're wasting your time, money, and vote. I, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that at all. In fact, I would even say that um, a vote for him, even if he does not win, that is still a vote for potential delegates that he might be able to take to the convention to yeah. influence the platform. So that's still valuable. Hmm. So I'm not, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm disregarding his candidacy, but um, but I think at the end of the day, he is running because he wants to make sure that the Overton window is shifted towards UBI. Mm-hmm. Um, we have w- definitely talked about him a disproportionate amount, but it's okay. We like him. <laughs> yeah. And, and we'll close. Like I will say of all the candidates, he gets me the most excited. I'm a data nerd, so that's probably part of it. But like I, I love the way he thinks. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far, but of course not. He yeah. does. He does. He does make me very excited. You're a fan of the, the white-haired puppet guy. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Up next, let's talk about Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, let's let's talk about it. He, I think, he was the Rocky Balboa of. He was the Rocky Balboa for all except the last round of the boxing match. He just keeps getting hit, but he never quite wins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he stayed on his feet. That is definitely He stayed true. on his feet, but like, I, I, you know, I don't even know if I would say that because, okay, let's go ahead and talk about that moment between him and Warren. Okay, yeah. Because he basically stood up there and said, hey, I got to be corrupt. I mean, how could I possibly win if I wasn't corrupt? Come on, guys. You're f- Why would you be criticizing me for being corrupt? No one else would like me otherwise. Mm. Like, he, he's, he's making the argument of um, not accepting legalized bribes is unilateral disarmament. And one thing that I would like to sort of uh, say about this is that he actually used to think the opposite. There's actually a clip that uh, recently got sent around of, of him back when he was running for a state house, uh, a state um, position in Indiana. I think it was treasury secretary. I could be wrong about that though. Um, where he basically, he basically made the argument of, uh, we decided we weren't going to be taking big money in this race because we want to make sure that people don't think that they can come to us later and say, Hey, I gave you money. Now you got to do what we tell you to do. Yeah. And we also want to make sure that we're uh, avoiding the image of that happening. Mm-hmm. Like, even if that's not happening, the image of that happening is still problematic. So we want to make sure that this is an uncorrupted campaign. So he understand yeah, back then, at least he understood the corrupting influence of money in politics. And now he's completely doing a 180 on that position mm-hmm. and defending a wine cave in which there was this, in which it was this huge bundling fundraiser where people basically say, Hey, we don't like this policy. Make sure you're arguing against it. Hmm. Um, and the thing is, I actually, in 2016, when Bernie, when Bernie first, uh, started becoming a thing, like he, he is someone that I had been following for a long time and I always adored him and loved him. Um, and when he started running, I was like, okay, I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders. I don't think he's going to get anywhere. 
At the time, I didn't think he was going to get anywhere, but I was telling all my friends, hey, I'm going to vote for this guy, Bernie Sanders. I really like him. I like his platform. I like his policies. And then when he came out and said he wasn't going to be accepting any PAC money, at the time, I actually remember thinking, I think that's a mistake. I remember thinking that because I was of the mind that you can't really do well in politics unless you do sell out a bit. But Bernie in 2016 proved that that was not necessary. He got so much grassroots support that he came close to winning the primary. And even in this current election, he has basically shown a lot of candidates you don't have to take PAC money in order to be successful. But the thing is, in order for you to be successful, you still have to have a message. And Pete Buttigieg does not have a message. The reason why... Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have so much grassroots support is because they're there for the message, not for themselves. If you are there specifically running because you want the power, you want to be president, people are not going, you're not going to get a bunch of grassroots support and you have to be corrupt in order to get somewhere. That is how you can tell the difference between who's fighting for you and who's fighting against you. And the fact that Buttigieg was saying the quiet part out loud, I mean, at least he was being honest about it, but... That should be very telling that he should not be your candidate. I think that's a really interesting point because like, it is obviously going to be really hard for someone like Buttigieg, a uh, mayor from Indiana in the Midwest, um, a, gay, a gay dude, to use his words, um, to like get a lot of recognition and support. And so like, I get his argument that he would not be able to be where he is given his whole circumstances, all of his circumstances without these fundraisers. I think your really strong point is that, well, doesn't that tell us something about you? Like, doesn't that tell us something about your policies? If you can't convince a large number of people, as opposed to like people that can contribute a lot of money, um, that you are the right person for the job. Now, I think, so I think he did stay on his feet because he was a he was like a really effective tactician in that back and forth with Warren and because he was helped by the moderators and Klobuchar ending yeah. the conversation um because you know he went on the offensive trying to, he referenced um Warren in her senatorial campaign accepting yeah. PAC money um, and then transferring $10 million of that PAC money over Which to is a presidential true. campaign. Which is true. Totally true. So he made a hypocrisy point and dealt her a blow. Yeah. Definitely. He also, this, I thought this move was really, like, good. He specifically made a point of calling out that the maximum individual donation is $2,800. That is a lot of money for you and me, but it effectively makes the point that, like, these are not people coming in writing $100,000 million checks. But here's the problem with that. They're still bundling fundraisers. So mm -hmm. if you get a bunch of rich people in the same room, you organize a bunch of rich people in the same room who donate the maximum amount, you use that fundraiser, that bundling fundraiser, to then raise a significant amount in a very short amount of time for that candidate. And then that group together, that group of wealthy people together, can then go to Buttigieg and say, hey, you know, once he gets elected, say, hey, remember that uh, fundraiser we did? Mm -hmm. uh, it's time for you to pay up. Sure. Yeah, I think the the really strong point, like really which strong is why, made. Which is why public funding of elections and or democracy dollars yeah. 
is what we need to go to. It cannot mm. like, even if you are someone that doesn't take corporate PAC money, you still have the opportunity to be corrupted by money in politics sure. through stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that point is a really strong one is that it's not necessarily how much money you're donating as much as it is the fact that everybody is coordinating together. So if you exactly. have like all the rich people getting together and yeah, they're only donating $2,800 a piece. But if there's like a hundred still... of them in one room, that's a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, they're all coming together and saying, we, we all agree we make up this percentage, this large percentage of your total um, fundraising dollars, and we all agree on these particular policies. We want you to go for those. And uh, to Nathan's earlier point, like even if this is not actually the case, even if it's the per perceived case, like Bernie and Warren are recognizing the importance of making the case that they are as clean as clean can be. And even if it's not the actual case that his policies are going to end up being influenced, he's not saying he's not promising that they won't one and two. Um, it definitely clouds his, you know, quality as a servant of the people. So what, but what do you think about his point that in the fight against Trump, which he Klobuchar and Biden are, you know, trying to make themselves the generals. In the fight against Trump, we need all of the tools we can get. We need all of the money we can get. That was like his big yeah. takeaway from that spat. What do you think about that? So I would say that there's more to be said about that than in uh, in the local elections that no one pays any attention to. Because like, so say there's a candidate who's running for like a some random house seat in the middle of BFE whatever state. Um, that no one, not a lot of people are paying attention to. Um, not, not a lot of people know the names of the people. A major pack decides they want to take down a candidate. So they start targeting a bunch of ads at that specific candidate. So that means that the only thing that people hear about this candidate that otherwise they did not know are just all of these negative attack ads. And that ends up hurting them because that candidate does not have enough, um, as much name recognition. It's a little bit different when it comes to the president because people pay more attention to the presidential race. So flooding the airways with TV ads in presidential races doesn't really have as much of, effect, of an effect as it does for some of the smaller races, evident by the fact that two of the people that have been flooding the airways the most have been Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg, both of which are polling abysmally. So, I mean, Mike Bloomberg came from nowhere to 5%, but yeah. But that's still not great. Yeah, like, totally. <laughs> that 5% is still... For millions and millions of dollars of ads. Yeah, for millions and millions of dollars of ads, that is not that great. Um, so... I would argue that as long as you are using social media, using free media um, to your advantage, as long as you are getting out there, going to going to various places, going to various states, um, and making sure your message gets there, um, having strong performances in the debate in the uh, uh, general election debates that people watch, um, that I don't think you need that pack money. And being able to make the argument that, hey, I'm actually here, I'm funded by the people, Donald Trump over there, he's a billionaire, he filled his administration with, with a bunch of Wall Street executives, 
and a bunch of DC insiders. He represents the establishment. He represents the people that are screwing you over. I represent the people because I only get funding from small dollar donations. That is a much stronger argument. And honestly, I'm, you know, I'm not a pundit, but that seems to me like an argument that's more cohesive with Buttigieg's overarching argument about his experience level. Because his whole thing is the benefit of my, the, the best experience for me is that I have no experience in Washington. Yeah. Like that is, so like if you're going to make that argument, you, I think you're right. Like you got to make it in a way that's, true all the way down. You can't position yourself as an outsider and represent the establishment ideologically. You just can't do it. Yeah, that's a tough line to walk. And, you know, it. Um, he's done it probably better than I could have ever imagined pulling at 8% for that kind of compromised yeah. narrative. Pretty impressive. Probably led by his, like, charismatic uh, nature on stage and his, like, he, the way he speaks is very deliberate and thought through and he like makes points very effectively. Um, But like I was, so instead of watching the debate for the whole thing, at one point I switched to a transcript, which was really interesting because you lose all of the showmanship. All you get are the words. And Buttigieg falls flat in a lot of ways in that when you just read the transcript. Yeah. The last thing I want to say about him to his point where he does call out Elizabeth Warren for the fact that she is transferring money into her campaign, uh, that she did get through corrupt means uh, during her Senate campaign. The reason why money in politics is so bad and people hate it is because it influences policy. His policy has been very clearly influenced by money in politics. Let's not forget that when he first started this campaign, he was making the argument that Medicare for all was the compromise position, that the leftist position was socialized medicine and a single payer system, which doesn't involve the government taking control of the hospitals, just picking up the bill for it, that that's the compromise position. The fact that he was coming at it with that point of view and with that type of rhetoric And considering where he is now, after he has now received a bunch of money from various different special interests, that should be very telling of the corrupting influence of money in politics, which he claims he's not corrupted by that. Yeah. And I think that's the point ultimately that Warren was trying to make because she brought up this whole back and forth discussion. And that's, I think, the point that she didn't quite bring home is that, you know, yeah, he's in this wine cave, which is you know, a very vivid picture to draw, but she didn't bring it home in the sense that in defining like, okay, he's getting all this money. What's it doing to his policies? She didn't, she didn't land that point that it is, it is substantively impacting the way he will govern. Um, And I think, so that could have been made way stronger. Yeah. All right. Let's transition and talk about Elizabeth Warren. So, Michael, you had something you wanted to say about uh, education with Elizabeth Warren? Yeah. So um, one of the f- like initial questions that actually, you know, um, Buttigieg and Warren were both asked was about their um, health, their education plans. So Warren, of course, um, is a proponent of universal free higher education. Buttigieg wants basically a 
um, subsidized education plan that's free for a certain low-income group, subsidized for people up to $150,000 in uh, annual income, and then um, no more than traditional subsidies for anybody over that. Um, and so the question was was put to Warren, basically, um, you know, why would we want to subsidize wealthy people in um, the higher education system? Which is a biased way to put it, but like, it's funny because I think the way the moderators were putting questions were specifically designed to put one, to create dynamics where one candidate would debate another candidate on a specific topic. And I thought it was really effective for sussing out the differences. I thought the moderation was actually pretty effective, but they put this kind of relatively mm. biased. <laughs> I have a different view, but go I know. On. And you, is it mostly about timing stuff or was it other stuff too? It, it was, I didn't think the moderators did a good job, but mm. you keep going. Um, but they put this kind of biased question to Warren. Um, and, you know, Buttigieg asked to respond to it as well. And and he said, I don't want to pay for the education of wealthy people. I want them to be able to pay for their own education. And the reason for doing that, for not making it a universal program, is because it really matters where we put each one of these dollars. And on his face, that seems like a good argument on a face that seems like a more progressive argument. And that's what you've seen a lot. You may have seen a lot in the media. When we covered the education plan, those articles kept popping up that Buttigieg's plan, because it's not universal, is actually a more progressive plan. But the reality is that because of the method for funding each plan, that's actually not that true. So, so Warren and Sanders both made pretty compelling arguments for universality of the education system. And the reason why Buttigieg's uh, counterarguments landed was because he was making the false equivalency that those were, it was like a zero-sum game, that you would either be able to take this, like that, that each of their taxation plans was equivalent, and you'd be able to take this pie and you'd divide up some that would go to, you know, educating the wealthy and some that wouldn't. But in reality, his his revenue plan, his tax plan, is much less progressive than Warren's. So really what he's saying is, because my tax plan is less progressive, because my funding plan is less progressive, I am not able to fund a universal higher education program. So what he's, what he's calling a progressive move is actually an indication that his tax plan is less progressive because yeah. his funding is not there. Yeah, which also, there are so many other things that you would have to... Um, bring into the, the discussion, uh, if the principle of your argument is, I don't want universal uh, public goods that sure. billionaires have, uh, the billionaires and millionaires have access to. So then the question I would ask is, okay, so do you think that billionaires should have to pay to drive on a specific road, but sure. everybody else shouldn't? Yeah. They should, I mean, they should in, have in to, DC, that's that what they, they shouldn't do, have access to... Uh, <laughs> Uh, to public libraries, you know, it, yeah. is, like that, and even even with schooling, do you think that they shouldn't be allowed to send their kids to public school? Now, most yeah. of them end up sending their kids to private school anyway, and that's the same in college. Most most people that are super wealthy uh, send yeah. their kids to private colleges anyway, which yeah. won't wouldn't be affected by this. So, and it was, it's 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 an intellectually dishonest point that is. really does make um, a smoke and mirrors. Uh, progressive, um, like pseudo progressive. Yeah, pseudo progressive. Yeah, and it's funny because 
together, uh, Sanders and Warren tackled his challenge really effectively. Sanders's point was very much yours. Donald Trump's kids should be able to go to public school too, which yeah. is like that's pretty compelling. And they we, don't though. <laughs> and it, and it's making the argument that higher education is education. Higher education should be public education, just the way that all other education in our yeah. country is. And and that goes back to the conversation that we had previously in our discussion about universal higher education. You can go back to that episode if you're curious. But basically the idea is we're looking to raise the educational baseline of the United States. Yeah. And that's the goal. And Warren's point was that she actually wants those billionaires to pay for everybody's schooling, whether they go to that school or not, which is what which is what public schooling does, yeah. right? You're having wealthy people subsidize um, everybody's schooling. Um, whereas Buttigieg's plan would just allow them to only pay for, you know, only pay for public schools if they went to public schools and would allocate to private schools otherwise. So overall, um, the education plan seems to pretty fairly land in Warren and Bernie's court. Yeah. Um, another thing I, I want to say about Warren, um, and, and I want to say this not to make it sound like I'm, uh, I'm sniping at Warren or anything, but I do want to emphasize a very key difference between her and Bernie Sanders and a very key reason why I support Bernie Sanders over Elizabeth Warren. And that is the fact that while she is significantly less corrupted by money in politics, and she has very much come to the right position of not going, not holding these major fundraisers, not accepting PAC money, and honoring the spirit of which that pledge is made. It is true that she has, uh, she has actually put some of the money that she raised through those corrupt means from previous Senate election uh, uh, campaigns into her presidential campaign. And for that reason, I remember watching that part and thinking, these are all great criticisms of Pete Buttigieg, but they really should have been made by Bernie because sure. Pete Buttigieg can't turn that around on Bernie because he's never uh, benefited from those from those special interests making direct contributions to his campaign or to any uh, to a super PAC. Um, you can't turn that around on him. Hell, a billionaire tried to donate to his campaign and he sent the money back. Mm -hmm. Like you can't, uh, you can't turn that around on him. Well, Warren is a great candidate and I like her and I've said that I liked her. I think that she is very smart. I think she's very good on policy and I used to consider myself a Warren Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, back when Bernie was still kind of firmly in the independent camp. Um, there's still a very compelling reason why Bernie is a better choice than she is. Mm -hmm. I thought, so I thought that she has really come into her own as a debater and taken some points from um, Bernie Sanders' debate style. She's effectively re- uh, contextualizing questions. She's resetting things to be in line with her message, which I thought was like really effective. She took a question about nuclear energy, which is really about, you know, climate change. And, you know, so they tried to, they tried to lead her down a, you know, are you willing to consider other non green energy paths? 
And she brought that back to a point about corruption from the oil industry. And she was asked a question about, you know, um, education and racism and all of these things. She would broaden the groups of minorities that were included in the question. So a question about women would become a question about marginalized voices. And she would bring home a point about anti-corruption. And so overall, like, really effective um, debating. And, like, we've talked about her policies a great deal, so we don't need to go into too much depth on those. One thing, uh, so she had two, in my opinion, moments that kind of made my ears perk up in an an uncomfortable way, which I haven't seen anything about. Um, So so one was she was um, asked a question about um, providing for transgender and specifically transgender people of color and, and helping to um, improve their equality, um, in the United States. And she had almost no substantive points. She said, she said, you know, we can help them by drawing attention to them, which is true. Like seeing is the first step. But beyond that, she just said, I will make a pledge to go to the Rose Garden every year and read a list of the transgender people of color that died in the previous year. And that's that's great, but that's not policy. It's not policy. Like, and like, it's totally resigned to there being transgender people of color that are unjustly killed every year. Yeah. And they're very, I think there are very easy policies that you could very quickly bring up. Like, first off, I'm going to reverse the the ban on trans people in the military. Yeah. Um, as it stands, uh, violence against trans people is not federally considered a hate crime. Yes. Yeah. We should change that. Um, you know, current, we need to pass the, uh, um, the Equality Act mm-hmm. to make sure that uh, trans people have employment protections. We need to make sure that uh, we we need to fight against bullying at a younger age, making sure that our schools are adequately mm-hmm. prepared to deal with that and adequately prepared to educate people about um, how destructive bullying can be for yeah. trans youth. I mm-hmm. mean, like 50% of trans youth at some point have attempted to commit suicide. There are very easy substantive policies that you could argue for. And I didn't really get that. Not at all. And I mean, maybe it's a little nitpicky. Maybe you can't be perfect on everything. There was there was one moment that I do want to give her huge credit for that I loved, which was where the moderators were kind of like, so there are some economists who say that raising taxes on rich people is bad. Yeah. <laughs> what is your response? And she's just like, they're just wrong. Are like, you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? I mean. But then the, she made the case for it. Yeah. Right? Then she made the case for it. I mean. I mean, hell, in uh, back when Eisenhower was the president, the highest marginal tax rate was 90%. And that was considered the golden age of economic expansion. Now, you could argue that there were certain loopholes and you know maybe there was a lower effective tax rate, but that doesn't change the fact that people were paying, that rich people were paying significantly more in taxes back then. Yeah. And the middle class was strong and it was considered the golden age of economic expansion. Yeah, if you look at tax rate by wealth over time, Wealth, really wealthy people have continued, their tax rate has continued to decline. Middle class people, their tax rate has gone up incrementally. And then um, poor people, it has gone up as well. And like, it's so clear that middle and low and low income people are subsidizing tax cuts for wealthy people. Yeah. It's like astounding. All right. Up next, let's talk about the man, the myth, the legend, 
Bernie Sanders. He's a myth? Well, I mean, did you know that myth doesn't actually mean falsehood? It just means that it's like a story that explains something. So people actually use the word myth in a very false way. That is so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it pisses it's, me off when people say like, oh, is that is that true or a myth? Well, no, that's not like a myth is like it's a story that explains something without necessarily like being literal. So why are people using it that way? So then Bernie Sanders is like one of the most, uh, you know, effective mythologians. Myth- Archetypes. Archetypes? Yeah. Of like of them all. Because <laughs> exactly. he's constantly connecting dots and telling stories about his constituents that uh, explain things. Yeah. So yeah. the myth it is. <laughs> <laughs> so of course I'm biased. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made my biases clear from the very beginning. I'm a Bernie supporter. I've always supported Bernie. Um, I thought he did a great job. Mm-hmm. A large part, part of that is probably because he discusses the policies that I care about. And I know he's going to discuss the policies that I care about. And when he does discuss the policies I care about, I'm like, yes, there we go. Keep going. Um, but I would say, I think that, I think he really did hold his own. I think that he has actually, after this debate, more and more, you've been seeing articles that have been discussing how a lot of the uh, democratic insider circles are like, it might be Bernie. Like, Mm-hmm. Bernie's actually Bernie's actually a huge threat. Like, yeah, um, and they don't want that. Yeah, they do not want him to get the nomination um, because he actually would upset the status quo and he would demonstrate just like it's easy to look at the Democratic Party and compare it to the Republican Party and say, well, obviously the Democratic Party is the good guy. They're the good guys. You know, good. The Republican Party. They're freaking horrible. They're taking away people's health care. Um, they're discriminating against immigrants. Like, they're horrible. But then you look at the Democratic Party and then you compare them to someone like Bernie Sanders and it's like, I mean, Bernie Sanders is fighting to give everyone health care through a Medicare for all system. The Democratic Party is advocating for maintaining a status quo in which, like, um, 35 to 40,000 people die a year due to a lack of access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. They're advocating for maintaining premiums and deductibles. Bernie is advocating for completely getting rid of them. Yeah. Um, and like, and Klobuchar and Biden both tried to say like, no, like the public option is a great plan. And it, it is an incremental, it is improvement in improvement. It is better. Um, but we but have like, a rare opportunity to yeah. get actual major progressive change done because people like Donald Trump has shown a lot of people in the United States just how corrupt to their to corrupt to the core the Republican Party is. And by the way, I mm-hmm. would just like to be clear. When I say Republican Party, I'm not talking about Republican voters. I'm yeah. talking about yeah. elected Republicans. Sure. Um but it's funny cuz like Bernie will talk about solving like the 87 mil, the problem of 87 million people without adequate health care. And Klobuchar is talking about solving the problem of like, you know, providing like 10 or 13 incremental people with health care. And it's yeah. like, they're just on totally like, okay, both are plans and both, both are, are better, better, but one solves the problem and the other chips at it. Yeah. So um, that's so. That's been Bernie's position in the race 
for a while. I think that so I think that Bernie has been the tortoise of this primary race so far. He was so he got in a little tiff with Biden. He went back and forth with Klobuchar a bit. He went back and forth with Warren a bit. But there were no like heated moments. And that's been like There was one. There was one, one very heated moment, uh, which was where he called out Buttigieg for the number of billionaires he's had. Remember? Sure. Yeah, where yeah, he yeah. was like, yep. uh, I have no billionaires. And he was Biden. like, um, he was like, You're falling behind. You have only 39 billionaires. Joe Biden has 44 billionaires. You yeah. gotta catch up, Buttigieg. <laughs> we're all like we're all rooting for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is no you cannot say that he's not contentious. <laughs> but I think that like whereas other people were like sniping, like like Klobuchar was sniping yeah. for Warren and sniping like Bernie is on this Zen plane where he's like, I'm gonna keep I know what I'm saying. Well, I'm no keep, one's I'm sniping at him. And that's true. And I he's not really sni I mean, that was a little bit of a snipe at Buttigieg, but sure. he's not sniping as much towards people directly. And and his and it's all in line with his narrative. Like he was making a point about himself. I don't have any. I don't want any. Like yeah. you guys have a bunch. That's a major differentiator. Yeah. And like his campaign is just like chugging along. He's going around. He's he's collecting grassroots support. He's like, and I think that is a huge um, benefit to him that he's so consistent. That he's so methodical and effective i think that it is not nearly as attention getting in the media and so you hear about him after debates like this way less like you hear about oh klobuchar won because she like hit a few like good hits against warren and Buttigieg. whereas bernie landed like almost all of his points i don't think this was his best debate performance ever um but like he He's consistently making his arguments effectively, lending his points, and like making a great case for all of his policies that are very detailed. Um, he's like just doing a great job, but he's not a drama show. See, I, I guess I think I guess my view is a lot more cynical. Um, I I think that the reason why uh, media figures aren't covering him in this is because they don't like what he's saying. And they figure, well, if I don't like what he's saying, and I mean, I'm an expert political pundit, I'm a professional, I know a lot about politics, then how could anybody else like what he's saying? You know, it's, it, it's, it's silly. Why would, why would anybody else look at a person who's saying um, we should completely get rid of any billionaire donations that we have and say, you know what, that's appealing. Why would anybody be, uh, why would anybody be intrigued by that? I have like 15 billionaire friends. Mm -hmm. I talk to them regularly on my show. Um, so I guess my view on that is a lot more cynical. Um, another thing that, another moment that I wanted to discuss, which enraged me for quite a while, um, was the moment where he was asked a question about race right after there had just been a discussion about climate change. And he was just kind of like saying, okay, I just want to bring back a quick point to climate yes. change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the woman was like, um, could you answer my question about race? And then he was just kind of like, race is related to climate change. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. In fact, people of color are disproportionately affected by climate change. It's like, listen to what he's going to say. And it's like, it's these moments that where you really see that contention, the, 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 that contempt that a lot of these 
uh, figures have for Bernie Sanders and his policies and who he is. Because he was about to give a very important point that tied both of the points of climate change and race together. He was trying to answer your question. Yeah, it's it's those moments, to your point, where it um, becomes clear that they've got a specific axe to grind in that conversation. Because they didn't do that to pretty much anybody else. Like, people... like. Oh, there were so many people that didn't answer questions. Yes. Oh, my. So many people that didn't answer questions, which is kind of typical for debates. But a lot of people that like specifically would be like, oh, I'll answer that in a minute. I'm going to answer this other question first. And I'm not saying that I'm definitely not saying that Bernie Sanders never doesn't answer questions. Sure. Totally. There there were times in which uh, they asked questions and he gave an answer that really wasn't an answer. And I and I. And and that annoys me. Even when he does it, that annoys yeah. me. And I think he did that a couple more times this debate than in previous yeah, ones. Yeah, I would agree with that. Which definitely, I thought, impacted. But not his in that one. A bit. Not in that part. Yeah, not in that case. You're right. But he does that significantly less than other candidates. Yeah. He often starts out his answers as if he's not going to answer the question. He'll say, you know. Well, actually, there's this fact and this fact and this fact and this. And then I'll bring it around and, and answer then he'll be it like, So to answer your question, that's the new context I'm setting so that I can actually answer your question in a way that's intelligible. Yeah. If I can make sense of your question first, I will do so and then I'll answer it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's just being like skilled up there. He's doing. I thought one pretty weak part. I think was his like his close. Now, I I I think closing statements are like important. I don't know how many people are actually watching at that point, but to me, that is your unstructured time. That is your time to get the bullet points out there of like why you should be the candidate and why right now I should get on my computer and donate to you. Um so those are really important to me. And his message always his his like campaign theme is like justice for everybody. Um, and that like is that is what unites all of his policies. And he didn't make it in his closing statements. He's, he only made the point about being a man of the people, a grassroots organizer, like the person who's on the ground. And I thought that that was definitely a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I always don't like it when they get off of policy. I mean, sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that's that's what I care about. I yeah. I don't care about your story. I don't care about, I mean, mean, to the extent that your story affects policy, I care about it. Mm -hmm. But if it's just your story, you should like me. And because you like me, you should vote for me. I I just don't care. Yeah, I agree. All right. And let's finish up by talking about Joe Biden. Uh, Mr. Joe Biden, the, the most experienced man in politics ever. The one person that can possibly take on Donald Trump because he's a known quantity and that's pretty much it. Yeah, he's been a known quantity since the Revolutionary War. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, funny me saying that, considering I'm a Bernie supporter and Bernie's older than Biden. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of old people There are a lot stage. of very old people oh on that stage. Oh my gosh. I thought it was really funny that they brought up um, Obama's comments about like old men getting in the way usually. And then Biden's just like, oh, I don't think he was talking I about me. It's like, um, he wasn't Biden, talking about me. Uh, yeah, I think he was talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually Bernie had an awkward moment when he was like, he said something like, and I'm white too. And I was yeah. like, okay, now you just, okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think he is a boomer. I th- isn't he greatest generation? Is he that old? He's, I mean, I think so. I'm pretty sure he is. How old is he? He's... 78 i think holy no 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 seven i think 78 or 79 he's really old holy crap yeah he's gonna if he becomes president he'll he'll be an octogenarian 
He lived through World War II? Yeah, he did. He was alive during World War II. Holy crap. Yeah. No wonder his judgment is so wise. (laughs) (laughs) But Biden's isn't. I guess that's because Biden's a year younger. You know, he didn't have that extra year. year. (laughs) He had that extra year. He might be a socialist. (laughs) Honestly, I'm very impressed that these people are that old and making like really compelling arguments for the most part. Mostly Bernie. Yeah. (laughs) Well, one thing I will definitely say about Biden and you, you, you and I talked about this earlier. This was definitely his strongest performance. Yeah. Not the highest bar. Yeah, fair enough. But he actually did seem a bit sharper in this one. Like he wasn't. The Joe Biden that ran in circles around Paul Ryan um, as Paul Ryan helplessly punched himself. <laughs> but I, at times I started to see a bit of that again. Mm-hmm. And that was good to see. I will say that. It yeah. was good to see. Yeah. I thought he was you know, definitely sharper than he was last time and has been in the past. I think he's still like he still lacks a thesis to yeah. me. Like it's just beat Donald Trump and I can do it because... You know me. International leaders know me. Oh, and remember uh, Barack Obama? Remember that guy? Oh, yeah. I, I was his vice president. Yeah. I, 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 in case you forgot. Yes. Yeah. Not former vice president. All the moderators called him vice president Biden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he still, like, kind of lacks that, like, vote for me reason which is really not that reflected in his polls because he's at like 28%. Well, again, I, I feel like in some ways that's the... Um, I mean, and, and the research does show this. Um, he has the most support, but he has some of the weakest support. Mm-hmm. So like with Bernie, most of the people that are saying that they're voting for Bernie in these polls are people that are like, I'm locked in. I'm definitely voting for Bernie. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Biden, it's like, I mean, you know, I, I, I you know, he was Obama's vice president. Yeah, I mean, I, I I liked Obama, so yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's let's go for Biden. Yeah. Um. So and there's he's got massive name recognition. And to be fair, because you know, politically, policy wise, I am definitely not with Biden on a lot of issues. But we at the Perspectrum do want to make sure that we are presenting the facts as they are in existence outside of any type of uh, subjectivity. Yeah. In quite a few polls, he does stack up the best against Donald Trump. Mm. Now, Bernie is pretty damn close, but for the most part, Biden does do a little bit better than Bernie in head-to-head matchups. And if a person's sole purpose for choosing any Democratic candidate is I want the one who's going to choose, who's going to beat Trump, and then they see those polls, and then they decide to vote for Joe Biden, that is at least a reason. Mm -hmm. I disagree with it. I don't think that Biden is the strongest to go after Donald Trump because he's not going to run in circles around him the way he did with Paul Ryan, unfortunately, in the debates. And I think that when people see that, that's going to, lose him a lot of that support but as it stands there are factual reasons why a person might think that he was more electable yeah and you and if i think back to like the mccain campaign back in in 08 yeah he was old enough that people were worried about his long-term health and they put a lot of emphasis on his running mate that was 10 years ago i know i know but like it put a lot of emphasis on Sarah Palin yeah. as his running mate. And all of a sudden people were seeing 
their vote as a choice between um, Obama and Palin as much as it was between a choice between Obama and McCain. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, you know, he hasn't announced any running mate or anything like that, obviously. But you, you, I could see, depending on who he selects, that being a liability rather than a benefit um, in the way that having Joe Biden on Obama's ticket was a benefit. Yeah. I, I also thought that his... His exchange with Bernie about healthcare was once again a bunch of bad faith, bad faith talking points about universal healthcare. Completely oversimplify the entire um, the entire policy. People basically frame it as if the amount that it would cost is added to what we're currently paying. Yeah. And he specifically framed it that way. He said, yeah. 16% of Americans are currently on Medicare. How are you going to add 84% more going to Medicare for all and not raise taxes? That was his like whole point. Yeah. And then he claimed that Bernie was no longer saying that, yeah, that there would, would be tax change. raises on yeah. the middle class. What? He never stopped saying that. He's always been clear about that. What, what the hell are you talking about, man? Yeah. Like, and, and, I, and I wasn't actually talking about the percentage of people on it. I was talking about total cost. Mm-hmm. Um, they're acting like the total cost of the current system, including private insurance. Um, we would just add the total cost of Medicare for all to that mm-hmm. as if we're not completely um, having a different Replace system. It, yeah. And also what they don't say is that the cost of the current system is more expensive than that number. There have been mm-hmm. various different studies that have showed um, different degrees of how much less. There are some that uh, has shown that Medicare for all would cost the American people overall uh, over the last over the next next decade like up to five trillion less in, in total cost. In total cost, um, and then even the most conservative ones. There is that uh, there is that Coke funded study mm-hmm. that put that number at like I think it was two trillion dollars. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's it really is like all of the arguments he was making were like kind of scare tactics. And we've talked about like his his main big point was like, hey, if you like the health care you have, you get to keep it. And like, OK, that sounds appealing on its face, except when you think about like, OK, if you like the worst, more expensive health care you have, you get to keep it. Wait a second. That sounds terrible. Yeah. Who would want that? Well, and the issue is that there's actually been a very long um, propaganda campaign by insurance companies to try to push the narrative of choice. Because the thing is, when it comes to a for-profit insurance system, there is very little choice. Uh So a lot of people who argue for the single payer uh, uh, for a single payer system for a while, they were specifically arguing on the basis of choice because under your under all these private plans, you can't always choose which doctor you go to. Oh yeah, you can't no, choose no. which care you get. You can't choose like your overall quality of care. You can't choose where you go. Um, so a bunch of uh, a bunch of communication experts came in and basically, and public relations experts came in and basically said, "Hey, we need to hijack this idea of choice and make it about um, choosing uh, how you're going to pay for it rather than what you're actually going to get," mm-hmm. which. I would argue is the that matters the least. Like that is the <laughs> least that matters the least when it comes to choice. You want to pay to for it out of your right pocket or your left pocket? Yeah, like, taxes that or matters taxes. the absolute least. What are we gonna have like plans for uh, for for fire insurance? Where okay, so if if my living room is on fire, then put it out. 
if my basement is on fire, screw it. I don't need it. Yeah. Um, if it's on fire from the outside, then go ahead and put it out. But if like it starts on the inside, you know, I, I don't need it. I don't need it. Sure. It's stupid. Um, like, do we want a system where you have the choice to like a, a firefighter comes to your house and says, all right, give me a, give me a hundred dollars and I'll put it out. Yeah. And then you say, well, I don't have a hundred dollars. It's in like, the house in my purse. It's in the, yeah. <laughs> um, and like, okay, well, do you have, do you have fire insurance? No, I don't have fire insurance. Okay. Well, I'm going to let your house burn. Mm-hmm. Like it's even sounds, worse. When that it, sounds dramatic. But that's, Except people are literally dying. Yeah. Like in our system, in our current, in our current system, we have decided collectively, if you don't have insurance, if you don't, uh, if you can't pay for a, uh, a certain procedure, like you, you have a heart attack and you can't pay to get stints in your heart. Um, you have cancer. You can't pay for the chemo treatment. We're just going to let you die. Yeah. Like if you can't pay for it, sorry you you have a choice you can die or you can become destitute and in many cases homeless or you can start a gofundme campaign and hope that people yeah and like, hope that the people that would be funding your health care anyway via taxes at a much lower cost are gonna voluntarily help you it is a monstrous preposterous system and any politician that is defending it and not completely uh outraging their entire uh constituency by nailing again and again that we have a terrible health insurance system we have an immoral health insurance system any politician that is not bringing attention to that is at best missing an important opportunity and at worst influenced by private by outside influences yeah and the fact that Biden keeps nailing home those um, those bad faith positions while every single year we stand on the graves of 35,000 people that died due to a lack of access to insurance. And he wants to maintain a system that, yeah, maybe his new plan would make it a little bit better, but it would not get rid of the core of the problem, which is profit-motivated insurance when it comes to people's lives. That is not okay. Is the Christmas episode all over again? <laughs> we thought we were going to have a nice, lighthearted conversation. Oh, I never thought that. I, I never then, planned for this to be lighthearted. <laughs> so his overall argument, which at least is more true for him than for Klobuchar and Buttigieg, is like, I have the experience to actually get things done, which like, you know, he definitely has more experience than, than either of them. So there's that. And... As far as electability goes, he can probably probably do a better job <laughs> against Trump than than either of those people. So it's interesting to like hear them try to make the argument that like Klobuchar was, was trying to make the argument she was the most experienced person on the stage, literally standing up there with people that are like lifelong civil yeah. servants. Pretty pretty crazy. Um, but like that's his that's his headline. And it's funny, as he like wrapped up his closing statements, he said, yeah, we all have these big progressive plans, i.e. just lump me in with all the progressives on the stage so I can make arguments about electability, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was really funny. It was like, but I mean, you have progressiver plans. You don't have big progressive plans. You have like moderate progressive plans. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So um, it's funny to like see him kind of try to try to play both. Um, for the for, but for the most part, he did better than usual. Yeah. Um, I'm always surprised that he's just staying right steady at that. You know, high double digits or again mid mid double digits in polling, because um, I don't think he's particularly compelling. But I guess it is. His point about maybe his point about name recognition and being like establishment works. Like he's a pretty known quantity, and people like what they know. So let's quickly look at um, as we wrap up our conversation, the debate. Well, first off, uh, I want to ask you: um, if you had to pick a winner, who would it be? Of the whole debate. Of the whole debate. Um, I think it would have to be Bernie because I don't think you can win a debate if you don't matter to the debate and so like you know like so klobuchar doesn't show up yeah who like people have you know tried to say one um like warren was strong and did well but got dragged into the mud a little bit and wasn't as high flying as and effective i think as she usually is and didn't really talk all that much biden was better but he didn't land his points i think you know, even though it wasn't Bernie's best performance, I think it was a better performance than the others. What yeah. about you? Uh, I would actually kind of say, and I know I kind of framed it to you as if you had to pick one winner. Um, <laughs> I would actually have to frame it in sort of two different ways because I think that Andrew Yang mm-hmm. um, did a really good job of making his points and making his argument for why he should continue to be on that stage, why we mm-hmm. should continue to listen to him. Um, but Bernie made the best argument for why he should be president, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so I would say that if we're judging them based on what I think that they came there to do, I would say that I would put them close to the same, uh, close to the same amount mm-hmm. with Bernie having a bit of an edge. Yeah. I think yeah. that makes sense. Um, I think that Warren, in the last two debates, she just, I mean, she hasn't been bad, but like after her first three debate performances where she just nailed it and walked mm-hmm. all over people, I don't know. It's been like, it, I, I, I hope that she gets stronger as, mm-hmm. as, uh, the, as the campaign goes on. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's do a quick poll recap. Um, to wind up our discussion in the primary, and then we'll finish off with our highlights. All right. So um, first we'll talk about where they're sitting right now, and then we'll contrast that to where they were just the day before the debate on December 18th. And then we'll talk about um, their variation from their highest point in polling since the race began. Yeah. So currently, Biden is sitting at uh, 28, and I'm, I'm also rounding to the nearest whole digit because at this point, one significant digit is not going to make a difference to the general election. So um, Biden's at 28. Um, Sanders is at 19%. Warren's at 15%. Buttigieg is at 8%. Klobuchar at 4 Yang tied with Klobuchar at 4 And Styers at 1%. Um, just the day before the debate, all of them were, like, if you round, the same. Except for Sanders, who lost one, one percentage point. He was at 20%. The day before the debate, and now he's at 19. Buttigieg lost 1%. He was at 9% before the debate, and now he's at 8 And then Klobuchar and Yang both increased by 1%, from 3% to four to now at 4%. So it's it's funny. Like, Warren and Buttigieg gave up a point. Klobuchar and uh, Yang gained a point. It was like an almost direct trade. 
Um, now from their highest, this is actually interesting from their highest point in polling, um, Biden has fallen 13% as of today from his highest point, which was back in May when he was at 41%. Um, Sanders has only dropped 5% from his highest point, um, which was 24% back in, back in May as well. Warren has dropped 11% back in October. She was at 26 um, and now she's at 50, and so she's dropped 11. Buttigieg has only dropped 4% from his highest point back in November. So notice these timing, this timing. So Biden and Sanders topped out back in May. Warren and Buttigieg topped out back in October, November. And then Klobuchar and Yang are exactly where they were at their highest. They are at as high as they've ever been yeah. following this debate. And then Styers is, I guess, down 1%, but who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So overall, like, not very much movement occurred from this debate. I'm not sure how many people watched. I didn't look up the statistics, but I imagine it wasn't super high before Christmas. Um, so it didn't, that could be part of it. Um, and maybe just now that people are making that really clear case that we've heard refined and refined, people are already kind of settling into their camps potentially. Yeah. All right. Let's end this again. Another long uh, debate breakdown um, with our highlights. So, Michael, what Great. were your highlights of this week? My highlights uh, were that I got to spend the last nine days with Bree. We had an awesome time. I got to hang out with my family and her family, and we had a wonderful, wonderful time. Also, I was so excited. My wife teamed up with my twin brother and uh, his partner um, to get me for Christmas, a beautiful um, Paul Reed Smith acoustic guitar, wow. which was my twin brother carried it all the way from Tennessee through his tour in Chicago and back to Virginia. And <laughs> it is absolutely gorgeous. I can't wait to get good enough to be worthy of it. <laughs> wow. Nice. What about you, Nathan? Um, so I have a few. Uh, one, I'm going to start with the one that is probably going to sound a bit more negative. Um, uh, as all highlights should. Yeah. <laughs> By the time this podcast will have come out, uh, we will probably be in 2020. Mm -hmm. That is a highlight for me. Because 2019 has been a crappy year. <laughs> like, there has been... But I did that good episode where we talked about all the good stuff that It's happened. been a crappy year, for, <laughs> like, personally, you know? Uh, uh, my... My former service dog died at the beginning of it. My grandmother-in-law died at the end of it. Um, and and in, in the words of my wife, uh, 2019 can suck a dick. <laughs> um, but in a more positive, uh, in a more positive sort of highlight, um, I saw Star Wars. Uh, excellent. And it was so good. I know I, I read some reviews. Apparently some people were like, oh, I didn't like it. Uh. But I feel like anybody that a lot of people went into in there uh, with their mind made up of whether or not they were going to like it. I just didn't want to do that. I was just like, look, I'm just going to enjoy myself along the way. And if I like it, I will say that I liked it. I'm not going to pretend that I didn't. And I really did. I enjoyed it. It was, in my opinion, it was everything that I hoped it would be. Um, there were some parts of it where I thought, oh my God, they're going to do this thing. That's going to make me be like, no, this is not, I'm not okay with this. And then they didn't do it. And I was like, okay, okay, you're good. Uh, I'm not going to mm -hmm. give any spoilers, but it was so freaking good. I loved it. That's awesome. I have yet to see it. So glad you didn't spoil it. Yeah. 
And with that, thanks for turning into our 10th episode of The Perspectrum. 10 double and, digits. Uh, by the time you hear this, Nathan's point, it's probably the new year. So happy, happy new, new year, year, everybody. Yeah. And, um, you know, I encourage everyone, your New Year's resolution for 2020 should be to continue to listen to The Perspectrum and tell all your friends you about it. You know what? It. I like that. I like that resolution. Yeah, I love it. So uh, just go ahead and add that to the list and we'll uh, speak to you in 2020.